Well, it is my pleasure to be with you this last uh, week that we're doing this Bible study on uh, the overview of Luke. And tonight we are ending our study of Luke um, with worship, um, which I think is really appropriate because that's also how the Gospel of Luke ends. It ends uh, and it begins uh, all in worship. And as we have time together this evening, I want us to work with this definition of worship, that it's obedience to God and it's acts of justice to others. And that that's the picture that Luke crafts for us of what true worship looks like. So like I said, at the very beginning of Luke's gospel, after Luke has his little prologue where he tells us why he's writing, he then starts the actual story. And he says, in the days of King Jared of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly order of Abiah. And once when he was serving as priest before God and his section was on duty, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and offer incense. Now at the time of the incense offering, the whole assembly of the people was praying right outside. So I think you'll hear lots of words of worship. He's serving in this priestly mode. He's in the temple. He's actually in the holiest of holies at this time. And the whole of the people are also with him in spirit. They're outside praying. He's offering incense. And all of this is meant to evoke this notion of uh, this all being done as obedient to God's um plans and God's instructions for worship. If we look into the Hebrew Bible, we see that this is exactly how worship unfolds in the temple. And so this is a picture of obedience. Fast forward to the end of Luke's gospel. Jesus goes outside of the city. So he's out of Jerusalem and not in the temple. Um, and he takes his disciples with him. And this is where Jesus ascends into heaven and he blesses them and then after he blesses them and ascends, it says they worshiped him. And then they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple blessing God. So the very beginning and the very end both feature God's people in the temple worshiping. Uh, and it's really interesting because uh, one is before Jesus is even born. And the one at the end is after Jesus has gone back to heaven. And so there's this continuity of people have always been worshiping God, that that is something Luke wants us to understand. Jesus isn't changing that. This story, this gospel message has not altered the worship of God. This is a continuous um, praise to God that has always been going on and it will continue to go on. And what's happened in this gospel story has really just amplified it and made it visible to us, has given it to us in tangible form. Uh, but I think that this is such a beautiful picture of beginning and ending a story in worship. Also notice some of the other, what I call worship words, is they had great joy. They were blessing God. He was blessing them. It seems that the words like blessing and praise, those are part of this worship experience. And so all of these things that are coming together that we see in this, this frame of the story, the beginning and the ending, prayer, obedience, acts of justice, all of these things are going to be part of the picture that Luke paints of true worship. 
The first that we shouldn't be surprised because Luke loves this topic. The first act of worship is really this posture of prayer. And I think it's, it's important for us to see that as really the foundational establishment of how Luke understands worship. He takes stories that he's inherited from Mark and he turns them into prayer scenes. So when Jesus is baptized in Mark's gospel, uh, it's when he comes up out of the water as he's been baptized, as he is demonstrating this act of obedience, that's when the spirit comes down uh, and lands on him as a dove. But in Luke's gospel, we hear it said that Jesus had already been baptized. And while he was praying, this voice from heaven um, comes and says, this is my son. So this it's this act of obedience and also this posture towards God of humility, of seeking God's will. We also see that Luke does the same thing with the transfiguration story. In Mark's gospel, Jesus goes up onto a mountain and there is transfigured. Literally, he's metamorphosed. But the metamorphosis that takes place in Luke's gospel, it says, happens while he was praying. That this posture of prayer, this attitude, this position of humility towards God is really a foundational aspect of how we even go about worshiping God. So let's look at what this obedience to God looks like. So remember that Zechariah was serving in the temple. He was engaging in worship. Um, but there was a little part that I cut out because I wanted to save it for right now, is that Luke gives us a little character window into Zechariah and his wife. And it says that both of them were righteous before God living blamelessly according to the commandments and regulations of the Lord. But they had no children because Elizabeth was barren and both were getting on in years. So what we see here is that the act of worship that we have captured Zechariah in at the beginning was actually preceded by him living an obedient life, a life that does what God asks him to. He's living in right community with his neighbors. He's performing all of the things that he needs to do. And it's in that context that Luke tells us he was obedient, he's being obedient, and God comes to him in the form of an angel and says, your prayers have been heard. So you see how we see that foundation of prayer and its relationship to an obedience to God. So prayer is one of those acts of obedience, that posture of humility towards God. Um, one of my favorite Luke expressions is someone uh, hollers out to Jesus um, when he's in his ministry, you know, blessed is the woman who bore you, you know, blessed are the, the arms that cradled you as a baby. And Jesus just claps right back to her and says, actually, blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Um, and so we see this, the, this notion of being blessed, of being right with God, this this act of worship as being in right relationship. And what that means is that when you hear God's voice, you respond appropriately. You obey God's commandments. Um, this is a very Lucan thing. We don't find that in the other uh, gospels, but it's very interesting that rather than allowing her to celebrate him, um, we see this same posture of humility that Jesus just takes that scene and just turns it right back to direct that to God. Um, we're going to save that one. <laughs> um, another way that Luke communicates this um, notion of worship, of, 
of paying um, attention to God and to God's holiness in an appropriate way is his use of something that New Testament scholars call the divine day. And day is the Greek word for it is necessary. Um, it's often translated as must. And anytime you see it in Luke's gospel, the reason we call it the divine day is that this word always refers to God's plan for something to happen, meaning God intends for this to happen. And therefore, as an obedient person to God in proper worship, I must render this obedience. And we'll see a few things that are very much Luke's own invention. Um, the story that we get of Jesus in the temple, um, that's another, you know, worship scene. Jesus is in the temple as a child and his parents can't find him. And when they finally go back to the temple, he says, why were you searching for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? So not only does Luke create this story that this isn't one that he's inherited from the other gospel writers, but this is also one of those occasions that Luke says, oh, I need to put this must in here. Even as a child, Jesus is in the proper relationship with God. He's in the house of worship and he's actually performing worship because he is being obedient to what he thinks God demands as necessary. God wants me in his house. I'm in God's house. This is another one that is uh, very unique to Luke. Jesus uh, is in Capernaum and they love him. They want him to stay. He goes into a deserted place and they come and they want to try to keep him from leaving. They want to keep him and his miracles very local. Um, but Jesus says to them, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other cities also. And then here's where we get the notion that it's very much being directed by God for I was sent for this purpose. So we hear this notion of the divine plan that God is actually the one driving this gospel story. It's not Jesus and his own actions, but that Jesus's actions are all responses to God's plan and God's will. And then of course, um, when, when he said, and so he continued proclaiming the message of, in the synagogues of Judea, which those are also very worship words, worship contexts. He's in a place of communal um, adoration of God, of scripture reading, of prayer. All of these things are putting together this, this portrait of worship that Luke wants us to see. Now, this is one that Luke does inherit from Mark. And so it's interesting when we read it actually with the rest of these um, divine day statements. Jesus says the son of man must undergo suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So that must is, it's actually God's plan. And this is that scene where, um, Jesus asks his disciples, who does everyone say I am? And who do you say I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah. You know, you are God's anointed. And uh, Jesus tells him to not get it confused that because he's anointed, because he is obedient to God's plan, that actually necessitates his betrayal and death. And so that everything Jesus will be doing in being rejected in being killed and being raised from the dead are all acts of worship. These are rendered obedient actions to God from Jesus. And then I love this one too, because again, it's unique to Luke's gospel. It's the story of Zacchaeus. 
uh, Jesus just tells him, Zacchaeus, I must stay at your house today. And I love it because this one produces a lot of grumbling around him. It's on, and, and it kind of goes with the one we looked at in Luke chapter nine, that following God's plan doesn't always lead to the happiest ending. And yet there's this beauty in God saying at the beginning, you must be in my house. You must be in my temple. And yet we have in chapter 19, God directing Jesus, you must be the guest at the dinner table of a sinner of someone who is rejected by others um, and who's not welcome in society. And so I love that this divine day that we see these commandments of God that we're meant to be obedient to are actually this wide range of activities, wide ranges of people and places um, that God's people that Jesus was meant to go. And then of course, Jesus reminds them of all this. Um, uh, that all of this is according to a plan. The night that he was betrayed, he said, I tell you, the scripture must be fulfilled in me. He was counted among the lawless. And so this is that must. And notice that really um, important piece of humility. Jesus is purposely making himself and understanding that he will be counted as a criminal and he will be executed as a criminal, one who is under God's curse that he will be completely rejected by his entire community. And that not only is this fulfilling God's plan, but it's fulfilling God's plan that he sees in scripture that has been, so it's, it's almost like it's foreordained twice. Um, he's obedient to this interpretation of the scripture according to God's plan. Um, and so here we even see this act of scripture reading and the act of interpreting scripture as part of worship, of part of seeing who God is and offering God the appropriate obedience that goes with that. The other side of the worship coin for Luke is that worship, true worship and acknowledging who God is must have acts of justice for others. Um, we see this right in the beginning when John the Baptist begins his message. And I know we've talked about this passage in our other times together, but John the Baptist is incredibly concerned with worship. And he says here to these crowds who are coming out to be baptized, and yet that's also another worship thing that we see here. He says, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And don't say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our ancestor. And anytime that you see Abraham in Luke's gospel, that's also a very worship oriented word because that's going back to the foundation of the covenant, which the worship of Israel really rests on. Um, and where it sort of claims its identity. So to talk about someone as a son or a daughter of Abraham means to talk about them being in right relationship to God in acts of worship, to be the ones who correctly worship God and the ones who know how to be in proper community with God and others. So whenever you see that Abraham, that is very much a worship-centered word and it's one of those identity words that should let us know these are the people, the children of Abraham, those are the people who know how to worship God. And so he says, don't, don't think that simply being descendants of Abraham is actually all you need to appropriately worship God. He says, even now the ax is lying at the root of the trees and every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. 
And then the crowds asked him, what should we do? So worship is something in order to be in right relationship with God, they're, they're getting baptized, they're repenting, but all of those worshipy words like repentance and baptism cannot be separated from acts of justice, in which case he says, whoever has two coats must share with one who has none and whoever has food must do likewise. So we see here in this worship setting that's taking place there in the desert, we see that worship in Luke's eyes is very much a dual natured thing. It is uh, focused on God, yes, but it includes acts of justice for others. And that's how you know that you're actually getting this complete understanding of who God is and how we um, are in right relationship with God. Jesus's sermon in Nazareth that he preaches at the beginning of his ministry really encapsulates this. And this is also, again, something we find only in the Gospel of Luke. In none of the other Gospels does Jesus quote um, this passage from Isaiah 61. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And of course, he's in the synagogue. He is proclaiming, he is reading scripture. This is very much a worship setting. And what is the worship focusing on? You wanna know how we're gonna really worship God now that you know I'm performing this ministry? We're going to be doing acts of justice. We're going to proclaim release. We're going to recover things that have been lost. We're going to spread God's favor so that it is not just contained for us. And so here in this very explicit worship setting, Jesus' Jesus's teaching is pointing at it matters what we do to other people. That's not something we do after we worship God. This is fundamentally part of how we worship God. Another scene that is all uh, Luke's own that we don't find is Jesus healing this woman in a synagogue on the Sabbath. Now, the other gospels, to be sure, have Sabbath healings in synagogues. But in this one, Jesus has a lot of these words that we've been looking at. And Luke puts them all together in a very interesting way. So the woman is crippled. She's bent over and cannot stand up straight. And of course, when he Jesus heals her, as we know he's going to, because he's Jesus, he does that. Um, she stands up and begins praising God. But the leader of the synagogue fusses, and I, I am, I'm always amazed by this. He actually doesn't fuss at Jesus. He fusses at the woman who's been healed. Because he said, there are six days on which work ought to be done. Why don't you come on those days and be cured and not on the Sabbath? So just notice that he's not fussing at Jesus, that he's upset with the woman. And I, I find that really frustrating, <laughs> but it's really interesting because then it says the Lord answered him, even though he wasn't talking to Jesus. And he said, you hypocrite, you do other acts of justice on the Sabbath. You don't leave your donkey tied up and not let them get to water. You don't, if your child fell into a well, you would rescue them out because those acts of justice are just as important in our worship of God as keeping commandments like not working on the Sabbath. Yes, that's a worship component, but so is this. And you all recognize that in your life when you're not hyper-focused on what someone else is doing. We all already acknowledge 
that we cannot properly worship God and allow someone to suffer if there's something we could do about it. And so Jesus really brings this, again, they're in a synagogue on the Sabbath, in a worship service. And what does Jesus's worship? We don't actually hear anything. It says he was teaching. We don't know what the content of that teaching was, but we do know that Jesus's act of worship is very much setting this woman free from bondage, from her ailment, just like he said he would when he was proclaiming in that first Nazareth synagogue. Now there's another component here that is one of Luke's biggest and brightest parts of his worship picture. And it's something that's very um, specific to him that he works with in a very unique way. And that's these words. She began praising God. Luke is one of those people that we have to always have the aftermath. We have to have what, what happens next. And true worship usually includes this praising God, this acknowledging that God's presence has been there, has done something, and that it's good, which may sound simple, but when we look through Luke's um, narrative, we actually see that this plays a huge role in how the story unfolds. I want you to just take a, take a look at a few of the ways that Luke uniquely uses this aspect of praise in order to flesh out his theme of worship. And I, I think you're going to notice that you're going to start seeing praise connecting to these other things. Like look here in the birth narrative of Jesus in Luke's gospel chapter two, the shepherds remember had already been told by the angels. So they have this divine instruction, go into Bethlehem and find this child. And you know, you'll, you'll see this baby and this is the savior of the world. And they go and they do exactly as they have been told. Right. And so they're there in what I can only imagine would be a worship scene, seeing this infant Jesus. And then in verse 20, it says the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard, just as it had been told to them. So notice that component, just as they had been told. So they were in they were acting obediently to the instruction they'd been given by God through these angels. And then what does it produce? it produces praise. There is this joyful proclamation of God's presence. Um, another story, this is only found in Luke. Jesus heals 10 lepers and he sends them after, as he heals them, he says, go show yourselves to the priests. Again, this is also in this worship setting because they have to go to the temple. And it says, as they went, they were made clean. And then one of them, when he saw that he'd been healed, he turned back praising God with a loud voice. And he prostrated himself at Jesus's feet. That is a huge, huge view of worship. This prostrating, that is the posture of prayer. That's the posture of thanksgiving. He prostrates himself at Jesus's feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Now, this is really interesting and important because the, the big problem that Jews had with Samaritans was that they didn't worship appropriately. They worshiped on Mount Gerizim rather than in Jerusalem. 
and that that was their tradition that that's how now honestly there's very little about the rest of the things that they did any differently like the samaritans were actually just jews that worshiped on mount gerizim but it's very interesting that because they were unorthodox in their worship that was their reason for being excluded from the jewish community and being like sort of these reviled people and notice that jesus says were not 10 made clean, but the other nine, where are they? Was none of them found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? So notice how this act of praise, of thanksgiving, of glorifying God is this component of true worship. And it had nothing to do with where he was worshiping, whether it was on a mountain or whether it was in the temple it had nothing to do with that. It was, look at his posture. He's prostrating himself. He's thankful. He's offering praise to God. And so this act of praise, of being joyful, is actually seen as rendered worship and as an act of obedience. Also, uh, Luke gets this story for, of a blind man who Jesus heals. He gets that from Mark. But in Mark's gospel, it just says, and the man regained his sight and followed Jesus. But I want you to notice how Luke changes it. It says, immediately he regained his sight and followed him. Now that's, he stops quoting Mark. And then he says, glorifying God. And then all the people, when they saw it, they praised God. So notice what happens. This one person is praising God. And this prompts and produces more praise. It's almost as if worship for Luke is this cycle. It's a communal thing that is prompted and continued almost as a chain. And if you don't believe me, this is the one part that just brings it all together because it's a very odd worship service. And yet it's the one that we base the foundation of our faith on. Luke is the only gospel writer that has Jesus say on the cross, Father, into your hands, I commend my spirit. That is an act of obedience. And we know that he has just told this other thief on the cross, that he's going to have him with him in paradise. He has justified the man. And so he has performed an act of justice. He is obedient to God. And then only Luke has the centurion, when he sees Jesus die this way, he praised God. In none of the other gospels, the centurion might say, this was God's son, you know, surely this was God's son. But here he praised God and said, certainly this man was righteous. What does righteous mean? In right relationship to God. In other words, this guy knows how to appropriately worship God by being obedient to God's will, even to the point of death. And by even in the midst of that kind of difficult obedience is yet performing acts of justice on behalf of and so that's the picture that we get of worship from Luke. And I must admit, it's a convicting picture. This is a worship that demands our all, both as individuals 
and as a church. Welcome to Your Week with St. Luke's. This is Pastor Jeremy. I'm here with your other pastors and Dr. Eby. We're continuing in the Gospel of Luke. And uh, today, specifically, we're talking about worship and how we find that in the book. So take it away, Eby. All right. Well, uh, this is our last podcast on the Gospel of Luke. And in our lecture this week, we talk about uh, a lot of different facets of worship that are sort of brought up in Luke. We see beautiful hymns and songs of worship. We see prophetic worship. Um, Jesus um, is ultimately worshiped by his disciples when they recognize him as Mm -hmm. divine. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think foremost, Jesus, because he is the model of what it means to be a human being before God, uh, Jesus is also our model in worship. And he renders God complete obedience to what he believes God has set before him. Um, So my question for us is, what do we think about or how do we think about the connection between obedience and worship? Do those words even go together for us? I think they probably go go together for some of us in a negative connotation. I feel like we keep hitting those like things that kind of have negative connotations. I was going to say the exact opposite. Oh, that's so funny. I, I because the idea that if you are obedient, you just show up at worship every week, and there's there's again another like shame and guilt thing to that is that it's just it's just showing up. You're Mm -hmm. just there, Mm -hmm. and and that can that has historically in a lot of people's lives been used to be a, you know, that you, you show up not because you want to be there because you, you have to be there and that you check that box. And mm-hmm. so I, I see the there, there being a lot of negative in, in that connection in the way that I have seen it other places. I can go to the other direction too, but where, where is your immediate connection to it being a positive? Because I think worship is the surrender of my obedience to the will of God and mm. my surrender. The, the reason I worship and need to worship mm-hmm. is because that's where I go into the posture of obedience to the lordship of, of Christ and to the kingdom of God because I, 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 we too easily become obedient to the world around us. And so mm-hmm. I need worship mm-hmm. to be the place where I surrender my obedience. I think that's a much healthier framework than... <laughs> it wants to be projected for people. Right, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Because right, right. the, the negative side is obligation. Like, that's, you, you've got to be here, you've got to do this at. thing, yes. as opposed to, I oh, I need it. to be part I of this. I, I understand myself, and I need that salvation, that yes. withness. I mean, this kind of encapsulates right. everything for these this whole series. So that and then that's the difference. And how do we help people... Mm-hmm. Um, define that more clearly for themselves. Yeah. Uh, and how does Luke help us do that as well? Well, I mean, and I think it's really necessary for also to distinguish that we don't, it doesn't necessarily mean worship services. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. We're talking right. about right. the activity right. of worship. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, when we see, I think, the moment in Luke's gospel where Jesus worshiping God is the most um, clearly defined is Jesus is on the cross. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, mm-hmm. In Luke's gospel, Jesus does not say, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says, into your hands, I commit my whole mm-hmm. life, yeah. my whole, my everything. Yeah. Yes. It, it's, an, it's a rendering of trust. <laughs> um, and it's a, a rendering, like you said, of complete obedience, that this is the task God has set before me, mm-hmm. and I am completing this 
as a way of of honoring what God has asked me to do, and that mm. that that's worship. Yeah. Um, so it doesn't have to be necessarily like in a set service, but um, but I can still see that it's it almost sounds that obedience isn't something we would necessarily always choose because we want to. So maybe mm. there is an element of mm-hmm. should. Is that and I. You know, thanks to Brene Brown, should is a bad word mm-hmm. now. So, <laughs> you know, how do we distinguish between a good should and a bad should? There's discipline and responsibility there, right? Because mm-hmm. the first place that my mind went was uh, between worship, even though I, I was kind of talking about a, a service in my mind, mm-hmm. just the first place it went, was don't forsake the assembly. Right. right. The responsibility of showing up to be a part of the mm-hmm. community, to bring your part, to bring your perspective mm-hmm. of faith, to bring your hands to do the work, mm-hmm. right? To bring your heart for the feeling, for the yeah. taking care of people. And so, I mean, th- I, I think that there is a discipline to making sure that you're in the space to be a part of the community. And there is responsibility. Yes. Um, I think about all the time, in a worship class I had, uh, they were talking about the importance of communal singing. And uh, there was a congregation singing, It Is Well With My Soul. Um, and there was a, a parishioner standing there who had just uh, lost his wife. And he got to a certain part of the song that he couldn't sing. But the person singing next to him sung the words out, knowing that he couldn't sing those mm-hmm. words. And he was able to uh, to join back in with the strength yeah. of having the person. So it's our responsibility to be the one who sings the words that can't be sung yeah. by the person who, who wasn't there. Um, yeah. And I think there's a, you know, the should obligatory, I should go to worship because that's what I'm supposed to do, doesn't mean I bring my heart to it. Mm-hmm. And and I do think you should go to worship with the posture of your heart should be broken open right. <laughs> in mm-hmm. obedience mm-hmm. because sometimes that's what worship does mm-hmm. like it did with Jesus on the cross. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's to, to show up and be responsible because and therefore I should because I know that I, my heart has to be open to truly worship. Or maybe mm-hmm. just acknowledging that your heart isn't there. Like right. with the night before, Correct. Jesus yes. is in the and garden and he says, take this cup from me. I don't want to do it. That was yes. worship. And that's worship. So mm-hmm. even going to worship saying, God, my heart is not open. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And God wants our whole heart and our every heart. Mm-hmm. And sometimes even the heart mm-hmm. closed. Here it is. It's not mm-hmm. much right now, but you said right. you wanted it. Here it is. Mm-hmm. I, and that's going back to what Jeremy said. That is why we should actually show up to worship every week mm-hmm. is, is because when we are not feeling it, someone else in the room is. Mm-hmm. Someone else in our community is. And that is the role of community is to carry us when we are not able to carry ourselves, to mm-hmm. carry what we are experiencing. That That's why, you know, yes, absolutely. I've heard people say, well, I can worship in my car by myself. Yes, and that is absolutely worship. But I think what we are discussing here is this idea of community. Like we, we can discuss different kinds of worship, but but talking about communal worship mm-hmm. is the role that the church does have to play is to facilitate that, mm-hmm. is to facilitate the importance of it being a gathered, a, an embodied community and, and um, to, to be there and to be in that space. And even when we were all online, being able to see other names and comments and be able to, someone to share a prayer request and someone to say, I've got you and checking in on them the next week and all of that, 
that 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 is that is why worship can't only be individual. It also has to be a communal experience mm-hmm. to be able to carry that together. I could talk about that for days. But well, I mean, and that's that's present in Luke's crucifixion account. Mm-hmm. Jesus mm-hmm. takes his friends with him to the mountain yeah. and says, "Pray with me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Stay here with me while I wrestle with this." Even Jesus, and, yeah, even <laughs> Jesus needed needed somebody to be there with him. And then on the cross, Jesus's actions are forgiven the people who are crucifying him mm-hmm. and admitting the the thief next to him into his kingdom mm. like Jesus's worship to God included what Jesus was doing with all the other people around him mm. like those were never ever separated mm. so yeah. I think you're absolutely right mm-hmm. like even even Luke shows us that Jesus's worship was communal yeah. mm. right mm-hmm. all right I know you don't want to talk about a gin but <laughs> the Greek word pistis is often translated as belief. Um, and, and we see this word is described for Jesus. It often means faithful, that he was the faithful one, the obedient one. Um, what are some of those scriptures that we would recognize where this shows up? Um, well, there's definitely one in Acts when Peter is preaching his Pentecost sermon and he mm-hmm. talks about Jesus being the one that was faithful to God even unto mm-hmm. you know, the cross. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um when Jesus says things like, don't, um, sorry, I'm trying to put you on the spot here, (laughs) (laughs) just to, but just to connect us maybe with that, that Um, where we're seeing. So any place you would see the words like faithful, trust, Mm -hmm. belief, but most commonly it's belief, but the better translation is usually trust. Mm -hmm. So what's the difference between Mm -hmm. belief and trust? Especially when we're looking at Jesus being the one who was this faithful one, what did it mean that Jesus had this faith in God? Was it belief? Was it trust? What's the difference between belief? If I said, I believe you and I trust you, what's the difference between those? Trust seems to carry more weight. In an interpersonal relationship. Exactly. Um, there's, uh, and, you know, I've got three teenagers and we've been talking, we talk a lot about trust and how that's something, you know, we're going to give you some, but you also have to show us that you're trustworthy. Mm-hmm. And that is a constant relationship we have to be in where I'm going to trust you and you have to show trustworthiness and I'm going to show trustworthiness. And, um, so yeah, it's definitely, um, a conversation I'm having with, in my family, in my interpersonal relationships that you believe in me, but do you trust me? That seems to be, have a different weight to it. They seem to work so hand in hand to me, because even in that example you give, Jad, like you, they tell you that, that you can trust them. And you give them the trust so that you can continue to believe them. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like oh, yeah, it just yeah. seems like a, yeah. like a, yeah. it, it, I don't know. Yeah. It, it, yeah. A belief is an ascent of my mind. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. I, I can believe that the sky is blue and that right. one plus one equals two. But to trust it means I have to surrender my, my control to it. Mm-hmm. How Wesleyan of you. And it is interesting. It struck me. I've never thought about this, Chad, until you just said it. God does trust us mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and never asks the question of whether we're trustworthy. Yeah. 
we as humans ask if God is trustworthy, which is, again, so egocentric of us. Mm -hmm. We have to make sure someone is trustworthy. Mm -hmm. But God never does that with us. God said, here I am as Jesus. Never asked if we were trustworthy. Obviously, we weren't. We killed him. (laughs) You know? But... Wow, like that just struck me. It's such right. a human-centered, mm-hmm. and it is, and that's why I struggle with the word trust is because, again, I want to keep control over it myself mm-hmm. and decide mm-hmm. whether I think God and God's plans and God's will is trustworthy, which is why I need to go to worship. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, which one of those, belief or trust, which one is necessary for true worship? I think trust. It seems like... Uh, I, I like that, what you said, ascent and all that. So, like, belief is what gets me in the door. Trust is what gets me on my knees. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think both are really important. But, yeah, belief will get me through the door, and trust will get me on my knees. I think I think you can, I think you lean in, I think it's one you can lean in both directions in different times of life, too, is sometimes, because I, I hear it all being head and heart. We, we're kind of dancing around that kind of mm-hmm. idea that belief is head and, and trust is heart. Um, and action, I would add. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and I, there, but there's, there's a connecting, you know, fiber between those two. Um, I, I think they go together. I think you, you, could, you could feel the trust before you realize you believe. So I think you can. I think you can go both directions, and I think you can believe before you fully trust. And I think there are different times of your life you have more capacity for each one. I, I don't think you can pick either or, um, but I think there are times where I'm, I have to trust with my heart, even though intellectually I'm not, I'm not really there, mm-hmm. um, or vice versa. Or I get it up here, I'm not here yet, but I'm going to act like I do. It's, it's what John Wesley talks about, that you, have, you, you preach faith till you have it. You, mm-hmm. you can talk about mm-hmm. it intellectually, even if you don't yet feel it. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then sometimes people can, can feel and live out something that they haven't fully intellectualized. Mm-hmm. But I think there is, there is a connection, and, and I, I hesitate. I feel like we're kind of leaning towards trust being more important, and, and I, 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 I want to I wanna kind of play with the idea that, that they, can, they can be two sides of the same coin, and, mm-hmm. and we're allowed to kind of live in both of those spaces. So I'm of the same mind. I see them being very much in concert and conversation. Yeah. So yeah. it's interesting because I can believe in you as a person, mm-hmm. but I'm not going to trust you, which means I'm not going to worship you. Yeah. You and so it's so fascinating. I think it really has mm-hmm. embedded in what is your personal psyche mm-hmm. of what you've gone through, what you've been through, and, and, and how all those words, just like we said earlier, you know, worship and obedience, it can be negative or positive mm-hmm. depending on what your experience has been with other human beings, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. means we put our human being understanding on God, and God's like, really? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that reminds me of something DMX said. DMX said... Mm-hmm. Ch- uh, trust everybody to be themselves, but also believe that you see them well. Right. <laughs> yes. That's yeah. brilliant. Yes. yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that, that gets back to the whole trust is a word of relationship. Mm-hmm. Belief is something that is mine, mm-hmm. is in me, is mm-hmm. fully contained in myself. And so you're right. I mean, mm-hmm. I am part of all my relationships. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but trust is is something that connects. That means, like you said, there's someone on the other end of that trust holding the other end of that rope. Mm-hmm. There, that we are entrusted. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's something that, that that's connecting there. So I do see how those mm-hmm. are, those are definitely all components. Um, 
but maybe trust is the the longer game. Yeah. The mm-hmm. the one that mm-hmm. takes longer to right. establish, mm-hmm. which means yep. if it takes the longer to establish, it's the one that breaks last. Mm. So maybe if even if belief mm. falters and belief is mm-hmm. gone, trust was the one that took a long time to forge. So maybe it's the one that hangs on. And I think we see that in some of our folks who come to us who have not been at church for a long time. Right. And who think they have left their faith because mm-hmm. they don't believe anymore, mm-hmm. but still feel that tug mm-hmm. to be part of something and be connected to something. Mm-hmm. And 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 they find a space sometimes here or, or anywhere that reignites that and they realize, oh, that actually could connect back to belief when it right. at one of these pieces. So yeah, I, I, yeah. Trust is maybe the working out of the belief, the discipline. Mm-hmm. And it's those yeah. people it's like... the spiritual discipline yeah. of mm-hmm. it. They, they can't, they, they don't have the belief because they don't feel safe to trust. Correct. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. yeah. yeah. And that's what I keep thinking about is is the people who who come to St. Luke's who are trusting that they're safe. They're trusting that the words that we've said is you're beloved and you're worthy. They're trusting when we say at the altar, all are welcome, that that's true. Um, and that's our ongoing work is to is to continue to earn earn that. Right? And, and I would say it's just as scary to trust someone else as it is for someone to put trust in you. Yeah. Right. Because I, I, I trust people very easily because mm-hmm. I, I try to, to start from that. Mm-hmm. Nope. I, I feel like that's a, <laughs> that, that, has, that has worked out well for me is to start there and to give people grace from day one. Mm-hmm. Um, I get way more stressed out when I find someone has put trust in me. That, mm-hmm. that is far scarier to me. I will gladly put trust in you, but it terrifies me when I find out you've put trust in me. Mm-hmm. So... Well, a good, a good note to end on is that when in throughout the book of Acts, when they talk about having faith and um, faith in Christ, the interesting thing is the Greek is usually the faith of Christ. Of Christ. Mm-hmm. Right. Meaning right. that that's also been done for us. Yeah. Right. That mm-hmm. even when we lack the trust, even when we lack the faith, the faithfulness of Christ yep. is nonetheless there. Mm-hmm. And that is what sustains. Yep. So there's your Methodist ending. There you go. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Evie, it's been great to be with you these last few weeks, and it's always good to have you with us. Thank you so much for being with us. It is absolutely my pleasure. We'll see you back next week. <laughs>